millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. The flashbulbs, the protesters, the helicopters overhead. Speech delivered from the lectern in Downing Street. The new Prime Minister turns and takes the ten or so steps towards the most famous door in the world. But then what? What happens when you become Prime Minister? It is, of course, the greatest honour that can come to any citizen in a democracy. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10. It is a very exciting thing to become leader of the Conservative Party and particularly exciting, I think, to follow one of the most remarkable leaders that the Conservative Party has ever had. I stand here before number 10 Downing Street. I know the huge responsibility that is upon me and the great trust that the British people have placed. This will be a new government with new priorities. And I have been privileged to have been granted the great opportunity to serve my country. In terms of the future, our country has a hung parliament where no party has an overall majority. And we have some deep and pressing problems. I have just been to Buckingham Palace, where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government. And I accepted. Welcome to this special edition of the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Not many people get to do it. In the past half century, more people have walked on the moon than across the threshold of number 10 as a new Prime Minister. It is a daunting prospect. John Major famously felt it had come too soon. Gordon Brown felt he'd waited too long. But there was no American-style transition period, so things moved fast. 
Tony Blair told me that no amount of planning could prepare for the realisation that you're about to run the country. You're never ready when you come straight in yeah. off the back of um, 18 years of opposition. In that sense, you're, you're never ready. And, you know, there is nothing really that prepares you quite for that if you haven't been in that position before. Was he frightened? Yeah, I, I, I was... I mean, frightened is perhaps not the right word, but I was somewhat overawed, yeah. I mean, I think I was the... Well, one of the very few sober people around that night. <laughs> and I was, was very sober and very, very conscious of the responsibility. For David Cameron in 2010, there was the psychodrama of five days of coalition talks before it became clear that he would indeed be PM. Gabby Burton, the Tory leader's press secretary, recalls sitting in the leader of the opposition's office in Parliament. And then it all happened so quickly. I mean, it was literally like, I can remember David phoning Sam up and saying... I, you know, it was, it, it was at the table where he said, love, you better get your frock ready, we're going to see the Queen in about a couple of hours. And there was pandemonium. A quick trip to Buckingham Palace, which involves kissing of hands and being invited to form a government, and then a moment to gather your thoughts in the short drive down the Mall and Whitehall before delivering your first speech as PM. This speech matters. It's grown in significance. For Margaret Thatcher, quoting Sir Francis of Assisi... Where there is discord, may we bring harmony... Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. That was just a few snatch words to a huddle of cameras. It was easy for Tony Blair. Labour apparatchiks had packed the street with Union flag-waving party supporters. A decade later, Gordon Brown took no chances. On the morning he became Prime Minister in 2007, he went into a room in the Treasury with his gatekeeper Sue Nye and spin doctor Damien McBride to practice delivering his speech without notes. Boo! shouted Nye. You're a bad man. Damien McBride got more into it. Why did you sell the gold, Gordon? You ruined my pension. You've got blood on your hands. At this last insult, Brown stopped mid-speech and demanded to know, why is there blood on my hands? Some of these speeches are more memorable than others, David Cameron declaring... This is going to be hard and difficult work. ..had all the hallmarks of a speech written in haste. It was also delivered in the dark, thanks to the dark lord of spin, Peter Mandelson. He advised Gordon Brown to leave in the early evening, still in daylight, but knowing that by the time David Cameron reached Downing Street, the gloom would have descended. So after the speech, waving for the cameras, the new Prime Minister makes their way to the door of their new home, new office, new power base... Waiting behind the door will be the Cabinet Secretary, currently Sir Mark Sedwell. The Cabinet Secretary, the most senior civil servant in the country, welcomes the new Prime Minister and their spouse, if they have one. The changeover is carried out with ruthless efficiency. Gus O'Donnell was Cabinet Secretary under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. The people who work in Number 10 have lined up the corridor to clap out the outgoing Prime Minister. It's important. And that's quite traumatic. You know, They might have been there for a decade or more and... You've known them well, you know their style, you know the way they work. So you say goodbye to them. Then you've got a very frenetic hour when you're rearranging the furniture. You're trying to work out precisely what a new prime minister might want. There's a whole set of issues. So it's horrible. I mean, it's barbaric, actually, is the word I'd use. Gabby Burton agrees. You're walking into their office. It's like sort of walking into kind of... You know, it's a bit mawkish, really. So they, you can sort of always still, you know, smell them. Like I don't mean that rudely, but you know, it's kind of they—they've only just left, and 
the pizza boxes were still in the bin, you know, Gordon Brown, we went into, obviously we all sort of trooped into Gordon Brown's office to see, you know, where it all happened. And the the table had sort of scratch marks and sort of indentation marks where we imagined sort of mobile phones had been (laughs) smashed into it. Uh, I'm sure none of that was the case. The civil servants will line up, clap and smile and make their new boss feel welcome. This tradition is born not out of servitude to new masters, but a more practical purpose. In the pre-television age, it was a chance for Downing Street staff to see the new PM and their team up close so they could recognise them about the place. Katie Perrier entered Number 10 in 2016 as Theresa May's Director of Communications. It's very noisy, uh, there's lots of clapping, there's lots of back-patting and people are realising that we're here now. Let's, it's now time to get on with it. Angie Hunter, who was Tony Blair's advisor and gatekeeper, says this moment illustrates the professionalism of the civil service. They they are non-political. They don't display their, yeah. their political um, affiliations. And literally, that same group of people, as we went in, had been there an hour before, weeping, yeah. as John Major left. And Norma, you know, they would have walked, you know, they, they line the corridor from the door down to the Prime Minister's office. It's quite long corridor yeah. in, in, in Downing Street. Lovely corridor, it's got windows, so it's light and wide. So you've got you know, plenty of room for people on each side, you know, a sort of row on each side. And they had clapped out uh, John Major and they clapped us in, beaming, yeah. you know, literally beaming and, and delightful. So while the clapping and smiling has been going on, the Cabinet Secretary has run round the back corridor to be waiting for the new PM outside the Cabinet Room. Stepping into the famous cabinet room could be an emotional moment. Tony Blair said in his memoirs that he pictured a thousand images fluttering through my mind of Disraeli and Gladstone and Asquith, Lloyd George and Churchill and every other great statesman who had held court and power in this room. Gus O'Donnell says this can be a daunting moment for a new PM. I mean, I've got a, a great photograph that David Cameron gave me as he just goes through that door and he's got his head in his hands like this, like, oh my God, you know, fine, you know, he's suddenly realised and he's, you know, standing beside him is Sam, his wife, very pregnant. You know, it's not like this is the only thing on his mind, you know, and suddenly I'm about to bombard him with all sorts of other issues. This is the moment when the Prime Minister is captured by the machinery of state. By tradition, while all the chairs around the cabinet table are neatly pushed in, the Prime Minister's seat is at an angle. The Prime Minister sits. Waiting on the vast coffin-shaped table is bottled water, still or sparkling, and a small dish of mints. It is going to be an intense first meeting. After all the euphoria, the applause and the smiles, it quickly gets serious. Really serious. There are briefings from defence and security chiefs on the latest terror alerts, global tensions and imminent threats. One of the first jobs is to write letters to the commanders of the UK's Trident submarines, giving targeting instructions only to be opened in the event of a nuclear attack where communications with London have broken down. It's really, really scary when that's your first half hour. Stuart Wood went into number 10 as a foreign policy advisor for Gordon Brown. I always think it's a particular kind of torture to make the first act of a prime minister, literally within 30 seconds, this extraordinarily dramatic act of handwritten notes only to be opened in the event of an apocalypse. What an extraordinary... I mean, it's not designed, I'm sure, to put the weight on your shoulders and to make you realise that it's, you know, you're no longer running Department of, of, you know, Communities and Local Government, you're now Prime Minister or whatever it might be. But I think it must have that effect. 
While things are calm but serious in the Cabinet room, outside all hell could be breaking loose as the PM's political team get to meet their new colleagues, tour their new office and try to grab the best desks. In 2007, while Gordon Brown was at the Palace, his team, including Stuart Wood, had a two o'clock appointment at the Link Door, a Star Trek-like glass capsule door which connects the Cabinet office with the rear of number 10. You walk into the pod, it shuts behind you and then hopefully it opens in front of you. Then we lined up there at, I think it was two o'clock, and there was a line of women on the other side who were the PAs, the garden room girls and the assistants at Downing Street, and we were kind of matched one apiece. Like Strictly. A bit like Strictly. (laughs) And the thing I remember is that they all looked very red-eyed, like they'd been crying. And I only realised three years later when I left, they were crying because they just said goodbye to the Tony Blair team that had been there for 10 years, some of them. Um, and within half an hour, they were like, you know, hoovering the floor and then lining up, waiting for their new team. For aides and advisers, the first days will also mean detailed security checks, especially for those covering foreign affairs, defence and national security. My understanding is that the, the nature of questions, I mean, this isn't really any expert knowledge, but just from the fact that I've now been interviewed about former students of mine because I teach at university. What's interesting is the questions have evolved from questions about private life in a, you know, sexual and other things, to questions about money. I think they care much more now about financial exposure than uh, private life exposure. The incoming team will also be warned against using their personal email addresses for government business and to be wary when travelling abroad to assume that foreign governments are listening in. Sue Nye gave Gordon Brown's team some extra advice. Always carry your paperwork and a folder to avoid official documents being snapped by photographers waiting in Downing Street and never run. Stuart Wood again. Never run is a very good bit of advice. If you're with, I was in, with the Prime Minister quite a lot travelling around the world. If you're caught on camera running, it looks like something's gone wrong. It is a strange quirk of British politics that the entire country is run from three terraced houses knocked together to form the office, state rooms and home of the Prime Minister. Inside of Downing Street, is where it's, it's, a, it's like a slightly run-down Georgian country, country hotel. You know, it's, it's a little bit worn. It's very... It's not very amenable to a modern office uh, environment. It's got sort of rickety staircases, uneven floors, little cupboardy rooms. Gabby Burton found it almost too much. I can remember just being so overwhelmed, really, by number 10, the actual presence, actually being in that building, the smell of it. It just was like a sensory overload. Not that she was impressed with the decor. David's office, you know, was a bit of a mess, if I'm honest. It was tiny. There was sort of, you know, stains on the carpet. There was kind of, I always felt slightly, not embarrassed, but I think people were always very struck when they came in to meet the Prime Minister. Oh, right, this this is your office? Are you serious? You know, because if you go to, let's say, meet the Cabinet Office Minister, they've got sort of, a Nick Clegg, I think, had a sort of tennis court. It's huge, Nick Clegg's office, yeah, yeah. We didn't have anything like that because... So I often joked in, in Whitehall, if you, the smaller your office, the more important you are. For Prime Ministers with young children, living above the office could be a blessing allowing them to slope off for an hour to see their families. The Cameron children would often be seen playing in their pyjamas as dignitaries visited. Gordon Brown, by contrast, struggled to relax. Yes, he didn't enjoy living above the shop, um, and I don't think many Prime Ministers do, from what I can tell. Not that he spent much time there, but when you went up to the flat, as we called it... Um, you would sometimes get called to a meeting and then the, sec- the, the, the secretary would say, oh, he's in the flat, so you get the lift up to the top. But the main lift in the main hall uh, is how you got up there. And um, the flat felt a little bit like a place you were staying in for a long weekend. With, you had, had a few bags of Sainsbury's bags of milk and things, but it didn't feel like it was lived in. And, and Gordon Brown in particular, it felt much more home in Scotland, in Kirkcaldy, where he's from. 
Before relaxing on your first night in office, there's the small matter of putting together a government. If the updates on the state of the nation's security are sensitive, the details of the reshuffle require perhaps even higher levels of secrecy. Gus O'Donnell says a small office just off the cabinet room is used for the reshuffle. Mostly they're there. You, you need to make sure it's locked and you need to make sure that you can't have someone going in moving the names around, as it were. In comes a whiteboard with magnets to write people's names on. Gabby Burton says that in 2010, as the coalition government was being put together, disaster struck. I remember this great big whiteboard being dragged in and the, all the names were put on and then, then all the names, for some reason, the magnetic things stopped and, and all the names dropped off. We <laughs> were back to square one. I'm sure some people got different jobs. Both Theresa May and John Major were propelled into number 10 with such haste that they'd given little thought to their top team. Gordon Brown, by contrast, had been planning it for months, perhaps years, right down to every junior minister and aide. In addition to the rather quaint idea of choosing the right person for each job, other considerations are also taken into account. In the new Labour years, it meant balancing Blairites and Brownites. The coalition had to have the right number of Tories and Lib Dems. And since 2016, balancing Remainers and Leavers has been seen as critical. It is likely that only the very top jobs, Chancellor, Foreign Secretary and Home Secretary, will be announced on the first night to give the papers something new for the morning. The rest of the Cabinet will be rolled out the next day with more junior jobs to follow. Would-be ministers are brought into Downing Street, either through the front door or via the Cabinet office, and left in a small waiting room just off the main entrance to Number 10. In 2016, Katie Perrier was overseeing the release of who had got what job. And we had a, um, a moment when Boris did arrive and he said to me, you know what I've got, don't you? And I said, yes, but it's not for me to tell you or ask you or mention it, it's for the Prime Minister, so you just have to wait a little bit longer. Boris Johnson was then summoned to the Cabinet Room to be offered the job of Foreign Secretary before returning to a makeshift photographer's studio where portraits would be taken to mark the occasion. A slick operation, but not perfect. We had a funny moment where, um, well, it probably wasn't funny for George Osborne, George walked past to come in and one of the members of the team said, can you just repeat that? Philip Hammond is the new Chancellor. <laughs> and George heard it uh, as he walked past and just gave me a wink, which was, don't worry, I know, you know, I know what's coming, don't worry about it. And, you know, very professionally kind of carried on walking and, and you know, went in to see the Prime Minister. And, you know, at that point, people got shouted out a bit to say, you know, keep your voice down. This is, you know, confidential until so it's that, announced. That was technically the point that George Osborne found yeah. out, was because he overheard someone in the yeah. corridor. Yeah, George Osborne got fired via someone shouting in the corridor. In between appointing their top team, a new PM also has to keep popping out to take calls. The world and his wife wants to offer congratulations. For new arrivals in Downing Street, Switch is about to change their lives. The Downing Street switchboard is staffed by a team of crack operatives able to get anyone on the phone from anywhere at a moment's notice. Vital when the leader of the free world is calling. And the reason I was hovering was because the next thing he did was to take a phone call from George Bush, who was the president at the time. And I was ushered into a downstairs uh, a room where I listened in to that conversation with four or five other people in a soundproof room. Technology has obviously changed the role of Switch. John Major and Tony Blair didn't have a mobile phone. Gordon Brown was less of a stickler for process and was text and email at all hours. These days, a Prime Minister could bypass Switch by WhatsApping their ministers or advisers or other world leaders. They could also bypass their press team by firing off tweets creating the havoc that Donald Trump seems to thrive on in the White House. You know, if, if Donald Trump were Prime Minister, as it were, I would, 
I would have kittens because that's just not the way our system works. Gus O'Donnell warns there'll be hundreds, if not thousands, of calls from friends and family. Uh, and, and there'll also be well-wishers from the extended family. Yeah. And these may be members of the extended family that the Prime Minister's forgotten all about. But <laughs> they may feel that now their third cousin twice removed has become Prime Minister, they really need to congratulate. So you've got to try and balance and understand you know, who are really the best friends, who yeah. are the people you, that should be getting through and who shouldn't. For some, a phone call is not enough. Gifts, many terribly expensive, are dispatched. Anything worth more than £140 is seized by the Cabinet Office and if the PM wants to keep it, they have to pay for it. In July 2016, Theresa May was sent shoes, clothes and makeup. She chose to keep only hosiery from a firm called Luxury Legs. Well, flowers and food, you know, it's perishable, so you have to kind of have them. But presents go into a side room, never to be seen again. But um, flowers, I mean, at one point I walked into the private office. I mean, I feel for anybody that had hay fever because I walked in and said, you know, who died? There are just copious amounts of flowers from Tory donors or whatever it might be. Uh, all looking beautiful and lovely and, of course, uh, are all binned a week later. But uh, Trina May was pretty good at thanking people. And so she would always make sure that there was a good list of people that she could write to and say thank you for their very kind gift or, you know, lovely flowers. So um, I'm hoping they all got letters because that's how the machine should work. Still to come, the battle for office space and what happens when it's time to leave. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. In most workplaces, having your own office would be a sign of status, but in Downing Street, it can leave you cut off from the action. Chiefs of staff position themselves right outside the Prime Minister's office, acting as gatekeepers deciding who gets in and who doesn't. Informal, snatched conversations are often more effective than planned meetings. You felt sometimes like you should hover if, if you knew something was up in your area. It was almost like a, you, you wanted to be a bit of a bad smell, just sort of lurk around a bit, hope that you caught someone's eye and then they'd say, well, you better come in, it's your issue. Stuart Wood again. Under Theresa May, there was to be no hovering. Katy Perry remembers that a sofa outside the PM's office, used by hoverers, was soon removed. And it was made clear to you that you do not linger in this office. You are only to come when you are invited. And if you're not invited, you're not to come here. 
In the early days of the May regime, a small side office was commandeered by her chiefs of staff, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy. It became known as the bollocking room. And you knew that if you were asked to go in there uh, in the next hour or so, you knew it was not going to be necessarily pleasant. Occasionally it was pleasant, and occasionally it surprised you, and then it would be business as normal. If you had a team meeting in the bollocking room, then you really knew you were all for it. David Cameron had formality forced upon him. The coalition meant Nick Clegg and his Lib Dem team were co-tenants in number 10. Conservative spin doctors and policy advisers were told to share office with their Lib Dem opposite numbers. Gabby Burton was made to share with Lib Dem Lena Peach. I was made to sit in with my uh, opposite numbers, so Clegg's press people, and I can remember being really pissed off about that. <laughs> what, in the press office yes. in number 10? so I was sort of, you know, our offices, with Andy Coulson, and uh, we were all down at sort of one end of, of number 10, and um, and David said to me, you've got to, you've got to sit opposite, you've got to share an office with Lena. I said, well, I mean, I like Lena and everything, but I don't think that's going to work. He said, well, it's got to work, because if, you're, if you can't share an office and you're busy briefing against Nick Clegg, which I'm sure you wouldn't do, Gabby, but, you know, you just mustn't do that, otherwise this whole thing's going to fall apart. The thing that no team can prepare for is the speed with which everything moves in number 10. It's like a treadmill running at 100 miles an hour, which is impossible to get off. The diary will already be filling up and it will be non-stop and baffling and relentless, as Stuart Wood explains. It's the range. I mean, it is all your diary. It's 7am. It's, um, you know, you're meeting with the, with the Scottish Bagpipe Association who've got a problem with tax treatment and they've got a breakfast that your advisor, Stuart Wood, has stupidly organised for you. And then at 8.15, you've got a phone call with the Armenian president because there's a problem on the border. And then at nine, you've got uh, a policy meeting about long-term health policy. The, the, the range of, of issues and the types of meeting, crisis solution, followed by long-term strategy. And, and you've got to fight against this tendency to always put aside the long-term stuff because there's always enough short-term stuff to really consume you. Like all good things, premierships come to an end. A new arrival in Downing Street means there has been a departure, out with the old and in with the new. In 2016, moments before David Cameron went out to make his final speech, Gabby Burton called him just behind the number 10 door to tell him how proud she was of what he'd achieved. I remember I was there just as he went out. I sort of thought to myself, right, I was there right at the beginning. I'm going to get my elbows out and get there right at the end. So you were behind the door? Yeah. 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 I'm not sure I was entirely helpful, though, because I sort of said something to him and and he said, please, you're going to make me cry. So, Before he even went out? Yeah. That would have been terrible if you'd terrible. been responsible for that. Terrible. What a disservice. <laughs> <laughs> who, needs, who needs advisors like me? What you said to him? That it's... I just said, you know, you, you should be proud. You've, you've done, you know, you, you've done a good job. Leaving the building and the power and influence it gives is tough, as Stuart Wood explains. Yeah, it's, it's like handing over your precious possession to someone else and resenting the fact that it's not yours, but you want them to treat it well. That's exactly how it feels. I mean, you do feel like it's... The, the, the wrench that suddenly you won't be, you know, there, it, it's extraordinary because it's such an all-consuming thing, too all-consuming probably, not healthy in all sorts of ways. But you also sort of feel that the next generation of people who may disagree with you implicitly, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very precious thing, right? And you want them to do well in a funny way, yeah. And so it ends as it began with letters. Before leaving, Gordon Brown wrote three letters, one to David Cameron, left under a bottle of whiskey, one to Nelson Mandela and one to Aung San Suu Kyi. Most Prime Ministers leave their successor a note, knowing they are one of just a handful of people alive who know what the job is really like. 
Gordon Brown had a well-worn joke about this. He used to say that when you finish in your job and your successor is taking over, you hand them three envelopes. When there's a crisis, and that always is, they open the first letter and it says, blame your predecessor. When there's another crisis, the second envelope says, blame the statistics. And finally, the third envelope says, prepare three envelopes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years. When the curtain falls, it's time to get off the stage, and that is what I propose to do. And I wish everyone, friend or foe, well, and that is that, the end. Only those who have held the office of Prime Minister can understand the full weight of its responsibilities and its great capacity for good. Most people wish their Prime Minister well and want them to stick at it and get on with the job. So I want to take this moment to say thank you. But with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Red Box podcast. The producer was Alex Jakes. For more on what happens when you become Prime Minister, read my special feature, including photos of me imposed on key moments in Downing Street history at thetimes.co.uk. But for now, my thanks to all my guests. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.